Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. You're not a cop, are you? WKRP in Cincinnati. Hey, fellow babies. Welcome to a WKRP cast season two extra. We're not doing an episode today. Instead, this is our full interview with Christian Seaborn, who played Elgar on the Mike Fright episode. Normally on the WKRP Cast podcast, we do reviews of full episodes of the original WKRP in Cincinnati. In a regular episode, you'll find trivia, clips, drop-ins, and more. We're not doing any of those things today. Please make sure to also check out a regular episode of the podcast. Okay, that's the disclaimer. If you're still here, it means you want the extra. Let's get into it. Christian Seaborn is a pretty unique guy. The combination of his height and his energy made the character of Elgar Nice sizzle. He was a standout. As soon as we saw Elgar, we thought, wow, wonder if we could find that guy. We tracked him down. Elgar, or I mean Christian, is living in Reno, Nevada. He sat for an interview with a local podcast and blog called Our Town Reno a few years ago. We were able to track him down from the interview. Christian has had a full and unique life and career. His life has been marked by some high highs and very low lows. When we approached him about this interview, we told him we only wanted to talk about WKRP. No need to bring up any unpleasant memories. What we didn't know was the extent of Christian's involvement with WKRP. If you've heard the Mike Fright episode, you got a little taste. Christian has even more detail to share. Christian is all about the details, and he has an excellent memory. Time restricted us from getting too in-depth during the Mike Fright episode, so we saved it for here. A word of apology for the sound quality. Zoom let us down on this one, guys. Christian lives near a source of electrical interference, and he was connecting on a cell phone. We've cut out the worst of it. But there are some areas of bad interference. We're really sorry, and you are going to need to listen closely. Now, enjoy our conversation with Christian Elgar Seaborn. We're recording. Uh, Go ahead and introduce yourself. Give us your name and why we're talking to you today. So, my name is Christian Seaborn. Unless it's a bill collector, then I'm Doris Roberts or somebody. (laughs) Now, my name is Christian Seaborn, and I had the pleasure of working with WKRP in Cincinnati three times. And we are here to, uh, as as far as I know, and I trust you explicitly, we are here to talk about my interactions with that great set of experiences. Yes. And well, and uh, you've got a lot of interaction with WKRP that goes beyond your episode. And I call your episode Mike Fright. That's the one that we really, that's the Elgar yeah. episode. That's that's where you storm into Art's office and take things over. Um, but that is not the first time you were involved with WKRP. And one of the questions that I have had submitted by several friends of the show. And we, a lot of times when we're going to talk to somebody, we will send out a note and say, hey, we're going to talk to Christian Seaborn. Do you have any questions for him? One of the very common questions we got was, did they write the tiny attorney and then go find somebody to play that part? 
How did that work? And that is completely the reverse of how this happened, right? You got in with them and then they created the tiny attorney for you. Yes. Yes. It was so, very it was, it was very specifically created by the combination of Hugh Wilson, Dan Gunselman, and I was I was the part that I didn't tell you before, and me. They they asked me to be involved in creating the character in August of 1979. Uh, All right, but but he, let's let's back up to where you first met these wild men on WKRP and first got on the set. That was going back into season one, right? It was, and and I know you have had the, the pleasure, quote unquote, of. Uh, of, of hearing part of this story before, so, and I know we don't want to digress too much, but um, really the introduction to WKRP came through Rhoda. I don't know if you want me to talk about that in Lori Open Den or sure. not. Sure, yeah. Because that's really where this all started, two years before WKRP was even on the horizon and existed. <laughs> well, and, and uh, you you first hit Hollywood when? What What year did you arrive in town? 1976. 76. July. Okay. But I'd started acting when I was 10 years old in Portland. And at the age of 14, decided I was going to have a professional career at this. I didn't know whether it was going to be LA or New York. And prompt after a visit to in New York, after a visit to LA when I was 14, decided that LA was going to be it once I graduated from high school. And I went to the University of Portland for a year and studied theater. And then I finally got to LA. <laughs> um, I really didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, I was told, well, you need an agent, you need pictures, you need to do all this stuff that I never even dreamed. Yeah, it all made sense, of course, once somebody was telling me. I wound up getting an agent, and the agent actually hired me to actually work for her as well as being my agent. Uh, Frida Granite was her name. And her husband had just died. It had been a family agency 30 years in the business. And her husband had been the person who had run around giving the submissions to the casting directors for the parts that were being cast. And Frida said, you know, she had this great idea. She goes, if you don't mind being hired, minimal payment, but, uh, and you will run around and submit agents, you know, submissions for whatever's going on on any given day. But she said, always take a picture, your picture and resume with you. And maybe somebody will, you know, glom onto you because you're quote unquote unique because of your small size. Well, and, and now, now let's let's talk about that for just a quick second. If there's a bell curve of height, you and I are as, are at opposite ends of it. I'm six five. Oh wow! And on celebrity on the celebrity height wiki, which I never knew there was such a thing until I looked you up, you are listed on the celebrity height wiki. <laughs> <laughs> and. And on there, you were listed at 411. Now, you said that was the height when we saw you on KRP. That's where you were, right? Yes, and I've been diminishing since then. Uh, I'm now like 4'9 and shrinking. Uh, like I say, but by the time I die 30 or 40 years from now, God willing, I'll be three feet tall and my coffin will be very small. It's just easy to yeah, take care of things. <laughs> um, exactly. Now, do you have a term, you know, we've uh, in in uh, recent years, there have there's been a lot of talk about, you know, terms for little people. Do you have a term you like? You told me one the other day you like short, short guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's kind of funny because I, I live in Reno, Nevada now. And the year I was born, uh, the famous short actor Billy Barty 
oh, created sure. an organization called Little People of America, and he created it in Reno, Nevada, of all places, the year I was born. And I got a chance to meet Billy much later in life. And uh, so I guess if I wanted to be politically correct, I should say little person, but I'm not, I've never been politically correct. So. <laughs> eh, but you're, you're a short guy. I'm a tall guy. I like that. We'll just be done at each end of it there. So. <laughs> okay. Um, sounds good to me. All right. So, so you were running around with basically resumes for actors, right? If an actor had auditions they were going to, what you were doing was taking their information around. This is in the days before email when everybody can send things out. And you were meeting casting directors, right? Correct. And the third casting director, why I remember it was the third, I have no idea. But uh, the third casting director I met was a very nice woman named Lori Openden, whom I know you have spoken with. <laughs> uh, Lori, of course, was the casting director at that time for Rhoda, which was, uh, you know, the spinoff from the original Mary Tyler Moore series that started all this. And it was funny. I walked into Lori's outer office at CBS Studios Center, Studio City. And Lori just happened to be like in the outer office, like leaning down, getting something out of a filing cabinet. And it was the first time I'd ever walked into her, her office. And she looked up and she goes, huh, are you an actor? And I said, well, yes, but that's not why I'm here today. And she goes, I don't care why you're here today. What, are you an actor? And I go, yes. And she goes, leave your picture and resume with, uh, with my assistant, which I did. Then I had this bizarre notion. See, I never considered myself unique because of the height thing, which was really silly. Everybody else did. But I thought I need to do something that would remember, remind people of who I am once I met these casting directors. And so I had this. I had met uh, Charles M. Schultz years earlier, the creator of the Peanuts, uh, Snoopy, etc. Charlie Brown series. And Hallmark stores always used to do Peanuts themed cards for every freaking holiday that existed. And so I had this notion, I will send cards out on every holiday to every freaking casting director I ever made <laughs> with a little note saying, you know, this is who I'm represented by. I hope you have a nice holiday, you, you know, short and sweet type of a thing. And you're, and I, you're not I'm talking sorry. about just Christmas cards. You're talking about Fourth of July, Memorial Day. You're just sending them out for everything, right? Every, every holiday that Hallmark could have come up with, you know, I, I should have, I should have had stock in Hallmark for all the cards I bought during that process. A few months later, I get a call from Lori Openden personally at my house, which I didn't realize. I mean, I was still kind of naive and new to this whole thing. I didn't realize casting directors usually don't do that type of thing. <laughs> they call <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> and the agent calls you and, you know, but here Lori Openden was on the other end of the line. And of course I remember, you know, who her name was, but exactly. And so I'm like kind of tongue tied and she's going, we have a part on a show called Rhoda. I'm casting director, as you know, and I'm wondering if you'd be interested in, in doing it. And I said, well, yeah, that's the whole reason why I moved to L.A. was to be a professional actor. And she said, uh, OK, it's 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 kind of special. It's a non-speaking role. It's a home movie sequence where it's a kind of a sewing uh, Rhoda, Valerie Harper, at her high school prom. And you're going to play her prom date i said fantastic and she goes but there's one hitch she was very nice very supportive she would be for many years to come uh but she said you want to do this because it's it's a unique part so we can get you your screen actors guild card 
through this part, even though there's no dialogue attached to it. And I said, fantastic. I was I was smart enough to know that Screen Actors Guild card was a, a priority. <laughs> to, you know, if you wanted to work in Hollywood, you needed to be a member of the union. And she goes, but there's one hitch. Please, she said, do not ever send me any more of those Charlie Brown cards. Uh, she goes, I get it. It was a unique idea. It was fun for a while. But after seven holidays, please don't. <laughs> uh, and so... Lori's name, very gratefully on my part, got scratched off my Charlie Brown card list. Enjoyed a lot of things <laughs> that she did for me after that. We we jump ahead uh, two years. Lori calls me up again at home, not through the agent. Um, and uh, she says, uh, we, we've got a kind of a, a project and we've got a dilemma, actually. And I'm wondering if you will help me. And I said, OK, what's going on? She goes, well, we've got. Um, a young a boy uh, who's playing in, in our new show called WKRP in Cincinnati. Uh, this was season one, like halfway through. We need a stand-in for the child actor. We had somebody lined up and he had to back out at the 11th hour. And this goes you know, to rehearsal Monday. And this was like Friday afternoon. She goes, could you please help us out? And I was honest with her at the time. I have mixed emotions because she had gotten me my Screen Actors Guild card. She had got me started. You you don't want to offend somebody like that. But I also knew that you, I had heard stories by that point that you, you get so-called typecast that as a short person, oh, he does stand-in work. He doesn't really do acting work. And I didn't want to get known as that. So I had some like reservations. And I explained that to Lori and she goes, I get it. I understand it. But she said, what you should do uh, is go in there because when you're standing, you're actually reading the lines, at least some of them for now, the child now, actor. Because they're if doing you could give a little more detail as to what a stand-in does. Okay, sure. Um, so child actors, you know, this all changed like in the 30s or 40s. Uh, started, they, they started enacting child labor laws. I think the Jackie Coogan law was the big one where kids could only work so many hours a day instead of like slave labor, working them same amount of hours that adult actors worked. And so because of that, um, they they wanted to use the child actor. In this case, it was Sparky Marcus, but they wanted to use the child actors only for the time that they needed to show them, you know, actually interacting, reading lines, doing their scenes. But there's something that goes on beyond that, like setting candles, um, setting candles so they they can take into account the shortness of the child actor versus the tallness of, say, uh, Gordon Jump <laughs> as Earth Carlson. And so Lori said to me, she goes, go in there and read the lines as if it was your part. Of course, it'll never be your part because we have a 10-year-old playing this, but uh, she could do it anyway. And, you'll, you know, all the writers and the producers will be there watching and who knows where it may go. And so I went in there with that attitude. But if I can digress to, sorry, <laughs> kind of the funny story about the Polaroid picture, or would you rather I not? No, no, go, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, so back in the, when we did the Rhoda thing, uh, they had, again, it was supposed to be like 1950s, and they had me made up like this miniature Buddy Holly with uh, black grease back hair and these big black framed glasses that were bigger than my head, and this cummerbund that uh, took up like my entire chest. And they had Valerie Harper, who <laughs> also became a friend of sorts uh, through this. They had her with this Big bouffant hairstyle, you know, with the, the ponytail and big bouffant dress, very 1950s 
type look. And they got us together side by side, and it, and it did. It looked hilarious. Her size versus my size. And so this technician at um, uh, with Rhoda, after we got done doing our little scene together, silent film thing, he asked Valerie if we'd mind while well, he man got his Polaroid camera to take a picture of us together. And Valerie, very nicely, you know, I just cannot stress the whole atmosphere of the whole MTM. Anybody associated with MTM that I ever knew was extremely nice, extremely generous. And Valerie said, of course, you know, no big deal. And, you know, a star on some other series may say, wait a minute, I don't have time for this. But, you know, it just wasn't like that with the whole MTM experience. And so we took this picture and I went home and that was it. And uh, so now uh, we jump ahead two years to the Sparky Marcus thing. It basically succumbs on a, a week schedule. And uh, the very first day you were sitting doing what's called a table read. And it's this long table where all the actors are, where all the producers are, the writers are. Anybody who needs to know what's going on from day one is, is present. And at the very end of the table was uh, Hugh Wilson, kind of like, you know, the executive producer of WKRP Creator, uh, kind of like the father figure overseeing the Thanksgiving dinner. Now, mind you, I didn't know who Hugh Wilson was yet. Um, I didn't even know who the name of Hugh Wilson was. I didn't. It was, I had been introduced to Rod Daniel, who was a producer. And, you know, that's about as far as I needed. And, you know, it was on an as-need-to-know type basis. You know, I was a stand-in. I didn't need to know all the important people yet connected to this series. So I see this man at the other end of the table, you know, putting two and two together. I realize, okay, he's somebody important. <laughs> and then out of the blue, well, we're just about ready to get started with this table read. And again, as the stand-in, I'm I'm not going to read. Obviously, uh, Sparky was going to read his own lines, but I had to be there kind of like to know what's going on from the moment it starts so that when I'm standing in for him, I can follow the same directions that he was would be getting because they wanted me to act like him in my own way. So out of the blue, the, in the rafters comes this voice saying, it's you. And everybody's looking around like, what in the heck is going on? And including this man, this father figure at the head of the table, Hugh Wilson, who I didn't know, this guy comes running down the stairs. There's these long flight of stairs on the side of a soundstage. And he's like running up to the table. And then all of a sudden I realize he's running right up to me. And I'm going, oh, what in the heck have I done? I've just arrived. <laughs> and so this guy comes running back a few minutes later. And he had in his hand that little Polaroid shot that he had taken two years earlier of Valerie and me together. <laughs> and he said, I've been holding on to this for two years because I knew when somebody comes and joins an MTM show, they always come back again. I was extremely touched, held on to that for years. Moving ahead from there, uh, just to kind of highlight just how special, at least to me, uh, this whole entourage was. We we get on our feet. We, we do the table read. We get on our feet, you know, blocking the thing. And I, I'm having to follow what Sparky is being instructed to do because I have to then stand in and do the exact same thing, at least movement-wise, that he's doing so they can get the camera angles right and... So we break for lunch and I followed Lori's instructions. When I got a chance to be on the, the stage, on the set, uh, I am reading the lines as if I was actually going to do this role, which I never was going to do. So we break for lunch. Frank Bonner, who played Herb Tyler, comes up to me and we're kind of talking and he 
kind of ended the conversation. It was about maybe a five or 10 minute conversation about this, that, and whatever. And he says, you know, you, you're a really good actor. You are an actor, you know, right? And I said, oh, absolutely. And he goes, and by the way, Hugh Wilson thinks you're a really great actor as well. You've got some talent. And I said, thank you very much. And inside my head, I'm thinking, who in the heck is Hugh Wilson? So we proceed to the second day, Tuesday, and we break for lunch again. And this time, Howard Hessman, of course, Dr. Fever, we start getting a conversation because he was originally from Oregon and I'm from Portland, Oregon. And we're talking about Oregon. And he kind of ended the conversation the same way Frank did. He goes, you know, you're, you got some talent and uh, Hugh Wilson thinks you're really good, by the way. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm not going to show my ignorance about who is Hugh Wilson by asking who Hugh Wilson was. But I thought, I, I need to know who Hugh Wilson is. If this guy thinks I'm good, by God, I better know who he is. We get to the third day, and, and the third day is kind of the end of the stand-in work, because on Thursday and Friday, it's the preliminary taping and then the taping for the audience on Friday. At that point, they're using uh, Sparky to do his own role. They don't need me at that point anymore. Wednesday afternoon, they tell me, okay, thank you for coming. Certainly, thank you for coming in at the last minute to do this. And then, so I'm getting my jacket and stuff together in the soundstage. And this guy comes up in blue jeans, plaid shirt. And I swear, I thought with all due respect to his memory, <laughs> I, I thought he was like a technician <laughs> or grip or something. But he comes up to me, he goes, you know, I just wanted to thank you for stepping in at the 11th hour because we really needed somebody. And, and you're a good actor. And it'd be nice to see more of you around here. And then he starts to turn away and then he turns back and he extends his hand and he goes, you know, it dawned on me, I never introduced myself. My name's Hugh Wilson and I'm the executive producer creator of the series. And I'm thinking, oh good, finally I know who Hugh Wilson is. But then he elaborated, he goes, you are good and we want to see, I want to see more of you on our soundstage. He goes, it's not just talk. We're going to, we're going to make this happen. He goes, I don't know when, I don't know how, but we're going to make this happen. And I said, thank you very much. And I went home praying to God that this was going to work <laughs> the way he said it was. About three weeks later, I get a call from Hugh's uh, assistant and she asked, would you, Hugh wants to know if you want to come and work for us in your own right as an actor. And I said, oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So she said, the, the script will, this was on a Friday morning, and she said the script will be at your house before the end of the day today and be at the studio you know, at 8 a.m. or 9 a.m., whatever it was, on the following Monday. And so the script arrived, and I'm at home reading it. I'm reading the parts that I'm supposed to be playing, and, and I'm, much to my dismay, I'm thinking, this is not very funny. The script you were looking at, this is the script that we've now come to know as Commercial Break and Ferryman Funeral Home. And in that, it was the attorney character? No, the script had been written like three months earlier. And there was a very tall actor, Fred. Uh, Fred Stuthman was his name. Thank you. Who was playing the funeral director. He would thought part of the humor would be the different size between me and Fred, because Fred was extremely tall and obviously I was extremely short. And I would play Fred's assistant for the funeral home. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm reading this at home all weekend and I'm thinking... You know, it's a funny script. There's nothing wrong with the script. There's just something wrong with my part in the script. But boy, you know, when you're a young actor and you're getting a chance like this, you don't want to believe what you're reading. And uh, so I show up on Monday. We sit down and do the table read. And the table read with everybody was just, in my mind, as I'm even reading it, I still remember that it was just as painful as my reading it at home, if not more so, because now I'm with everybody else. And it's still not funny. My part in it was not funny. The script itself was hilarious, but 
my part in it was not. And so we get to Tuesday, we're on our feet, we're starting to block the thing, and we break for lunch, and we come back from lunch, and Rod Daniel pulls me aside, and he goes, he wants to talk to you in his office. And I thought, oh, geez. <laughs> so I, I go up to Hugh's office. Hugh said, please, Christian, come in and have a seat. I mean, I knew where this was going, but he was extremely gracious. But he's kind of said, I've never had to fire somebody. And he goes, I want you to know this has nothing to do with your acting ability. Because I really want to use you on our show, I tried to insert you into a script insert a new character into a script that had been written. It's not working. And frankly, it's kind of ruining a good script. <laughs> and I said, I know. And I didn't know. It wasn't a shock to you. This it was, was, it was not, but, but, and he ended by saying, you know, if we get picked up for a second year, this was close to the end of year one. We'll do this right for day one. I want you on the show. Um, and we will get right. Um, if we get picked up by CBS for a second year. So I went home and boy, once we got into summer, I'm watching, I'm reading the trade papers every day, seeing if CBS has picked up WKRP for a second season. CBS delayed, delayed. They were picking up other shows, but WKRP was not yet on the list. <laughs> the exact timing, I could be wrong. It was like July, maybe early August when CBS finally of 79, when it was CBS right at the end of July. Right at the end of July, when they called them back and they had to sign everyone's contract right then, right before they started shooting. It was at the very last minute. Thank you. I, I, I knew it was the last minute. I can't remember exactly the timing. And so I decided that, okay, the politically correct thing to do would be to send a nice little, a nice, nice little card or something to Hugh Wilson. Kind of a subtle reminder. Don't forget about me. But I didn't say that. I said, you know, congratulations on getting picked up for a second year. All right. Was it a penis card? <laughs> I honestly don't remember now. It might've been, but he called me up personally and he goes, thank you for the card. He goes, I kind of know why you sent the card. Don't rest assured. I did not forget you. We are going to use you just hang tight. So about three weeks later, it was sometime like in mid August, uh, Hughes office calls me again and says, Hugh would like you to come in and meet one of our new writers gentleman named Dan Gunselman. We want your input in creating this character specifically for you. Yeah, there was no competition. I wasn't like auditioning for Hugh Wilson, true to his word, was going to create something especially for me. And uh, I was I was honored and flattered then. And as the years have progressed and I've realized that doesn't happen very often for an actor, <laughs> unless you're a named star, of course, which I certainly wasn't. And so I went in. It was, as I said, it was mid, maybe third week of August. And I met Dan and Dan's writing partner, whose name escaped. been Steve Marshall. Thank you. It was Steve. My mother had been a lawyer. Dan found that kind of fascinating. Hugh stuck his head in the door just to say hi. And then, uh, you know, I, I think Dan and I, Steve, we talked, I don't know, maybe 45 minutes, an hour. And then I didn't hear anything again. <laughs> but I knew that they do their work and, and I had to be patient. I get the call that, you know, we're delivering a script to your house. Please be ready on the soundstage on Monday morning. That was like the third or fourth week of October. 
of 79. You have a much better handle on these things than I do. And I and I, I admire I admire all the effort you guys are putting into this. I really do. If I, if I didn't have such a good feeling about this, I might have had reservations about doing this. But I, I think you guys are great. So you, you guys probably have a better handle on the dates than I do 40 years later. Well, we're uh, pretty recall, sure October 15th, right around there, would have been the week you shot. Okay, that sounds about right. So that kind of is a nutshell is how I got up to being Elgar Nice, at least got to the point of doing it. Tell me about when you cracked open that script and you read your part, what was your reaction to it? Well, it was far different than the other one. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. Um, I'm sitting at home and actually laughing as opposed to the earlier experience. You know, I got to the part where Elgar and I just thought, you know, this, this is going to be fun. This is going to be cute. This will be really good. Not just because me, but because a chance to be a part of this. I could not wait for Monday morning to arrive. I'm sitting at home all weekend, like, you know, trying to memorize lines and remember lines because I'm thinking, you know, you better get this right. So all Saturday and Sunday, I'm like closed up in my apartment in Hollywood, just memorizing lines. And we get to Monday and because of the, the experience with doing the standing work because of the experience of the work with Fred, you know, I kind of knew now the lay of the land, you know, we'd sit down at the table and read the whole thing. And what I remember at the table read even was that I, especially Gary Sandy was, he was just laughing up a storm at, at this. I mean, he could see, he could visualize it better than I could visualize it. They thought it was pretty funny from, from the get go before we were on our feet recording anything it just got better and better the whole experience got better and better as the week went on how different was what you read when you got that script versus what you did then for the scene finally was there a lot of rewriting or was it pretty much the same thing that's an interesting question i remember there were new pages how much of that pertained to me i don't really remember it could have been some some tweak but if there were the specifics of that i'm sorry i just don't remember aside from the question was the part written and then they found you. The second most popular question that we've had in is, what did Lonnie say to you before you walked on? Did she say anything while you guys were standing out there before you entered Art's office? She did not. <laughs> she didn't. You know, it was kind of... So Will McKenzie directed that episode, and Will directed many of their many of the series episodes. Uh, it was kind of interesting because Will's father had been a real-life attorney. Will pulled me aside and we were talking legal type things. I think him to put me in the mood. And that's when I told him that my mother was a lawyer. And that's when we got about his father being a lawyer. And, and then he like again pulled me aside and he goes, you know, when you when you get in there with Lonnie, I want you to look specifically at part of her anatomy. <laughs> that's how he put it. <laughs> and, and, and it took me a moment because call me stupid or naive or whatever. And I'm going, huh? What? <laughs> Oh, that part. <laughs> uh, you were you were eye to breast with Lonnie Anderson, dude. Come on now. You... <laughs> yeah, that's that's and obviously Lonnie, extremely attractive woman, extremely attractive. I hadn't noticed. She what? <laughs> yeah, I know some people. Some people just that for a while, but uh, no, she was extremely attractive and extremely professional and extremely nice. And as was everyone else, so was associated with that. It was funny. There was a question on Facebook that somebody had asked me, how did you keep a straight face? You know, it, from the angle that you see it, it looks like I'm looking at her breasts. 
but I wasn't. Not exactly, because I couldn't, because <laughs> I knew I could not get through that with a straight face. I tried, and I'd start laughing. Gary would start laughing. Lonnie had this kind of like semi-embarrassed smile on her face. And poor Frank Bonner's sitting over there because he couldn't move. And he's over there laughing. And, and we must have shot that or rehearsed that at least five times uh, to try and get through it in one one instance. And and if you look closely enough, I was mentioning this also, and, and I have the utmost respect for Gary Sandy. Don't get me wrong. i a professional actor if there ever was. But if you look closely enough at parts of that scene, you can see a smile on Gary's face. He's breaking. He is covering his mouth. You've got him rolling. Yeah, I I think if one was asked Gary, he'd remember, too, that we we went through a few efforts to get through this. It was fun. (laughs) Something Marcus mentioned to us. Could you feel the audience? Could you really feel the energy of the audience? Well, it was interesting, and and you had not asked that question before. I was a big brother to a couple of kids from fatherless homes at that point in time in my life, and I had one of the kids who was 12 then come to uh, the afternoon taping, and then that night his his mother and he and his grandmother all came back for the the taping with the full on. WKRP very nicely let me have this kid in as a as a audience member when there was no audience at all for the afternoon part of it and then he came back but anyway i was real i remember being really focused not so much on the whole audience but on my friend constantine's i wanted to do something that he would be proud of saying oh yo i know christian seaborn (laughs) so i'll be honest i was not really focused on the entire audience i was focused on constantine's reaction suit you're wearing is that off the rack? Was that something they made for you in wardrobe? Where did it come from? That was my own suit. Oh, my you wore own, your own? Yeah, it was my own clothes. It was my own Pierre Cardin suit. <laughs> it was It was so much more convenient. I was always willing to do this, the shows that I was on, that if I could provide my own clothes, it made it easier for them, <laughs> made it easier for the production company. Yeah, that was my own suit. So curious uh, about the mustache. Was that your own too? It was. It was real, and I had that going in and still had it going out. <laughs> and I got rid of it somewhere in the 80s. It was too much of a hassle keeping it up. But I thought it looked good on me in, in the 70s. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was working. Give us kind of your thumbnail overview impression. You were in the room with Frank Bonner, Gordon Jump, Gary Sandy, and Lonnie Anderson, right? You guys were all in that scene. Take them one by one. What were your impressions? Just what Frank Bonner you've kind of mentioned. And and tell us about Frank's situation. <laughs> These very nice people, very fine actors. I mean, I don't want to imply that I was like their big personal friend seeing them outside of WKRP because I was not. But they knew me because I'd been there a few times before. And so Frank had had a accident <laughs> like the week before we were going to do this episode. He had been in a... I thought it was a skydiving thing, but you've corrected me that it was like a, how'd you describe it? Well, some of our uh, researchers that volunteer for us on the show found articles about this. And what he was doing was kind of a parasailing behind four-wheel drives out in the desert, where they drag you behind a four-wheel drive and you rise up on a, they call it an ascendant chute that actually rises up. So they're just running around with these four-by-fours. They get like Jeeps and stuff, and they're pulling people behind them who are like kites up on these parasailing chutes. And that's what Frank was doing. And it got a weird wind came sideways, caused his chute to collapse. And he fell about 20 feet. 
I had heard about this. I don't remember how I heard about this. Maybe I just saw it in, in one of the trade papers. Again, Frank is the one who originally kind of got me really excited when he had told me during the Sparky Marcus episode, uh, Young Master Carlson, about that he thought I was a good actor, that, that Hugh Wilson, who I didn't know yet, thought I was a good actor. You know, I felt kind of, a, again, not a really friendship, but a, I mean, I felt an affinity for this gentleman who had been nice to me, and now he's sitting, was, is sitting in a hospital somewhere. So I got a card, maybe a Snoopy card, I don't remember, and I went to visit him at St. Luke's Hospital, and he was extremely nice. You know, he was just really nice. Obviously, he was not in a great position at that point. I cannot think of one bad interaction I had with anybody connected with that show. And this was certainly another example of that. Frank and I were not like friends. You know, he was just nice and gracious. So then I didn't see him again until we went to work. He was, I don't know if he was in a cast or if he had some kind of immobilizing brace or whatever. He had sat at Carlson's desk in a position where he was comfortable and could not get up <laughs> from there. I remember distinctly because I come over and I, uh, well, Elgar comes over, whatever, comes over and puts my arm around Arthur's shoulder or whatever and says something about, Arthur, you have to listen to your lawyer. Please listen to your lawyer. Frank was like right next to the right of Gordon. And I was warned specifically, like, do not jar Gordon because he will jar Frank. Oh, it was hurting that much. <laughs> he was in that much pain. Yeah, I think he was or he would have been if he had been jarred. <laughs> so I remember them saying, please be super careful once you get near Gordon because we don't want him jarring Frank and having a, a huge problem. I, I, you know, it's funny. I did not remember that until just now that conversation from Hugh, I think, you know, kind of said, be gentle. <laughs> we know you're pretty energetic and, you know, just be cautious when you get over near Gordon, near Frank. I feel like when you come in there, you just own that room. I mean, you come in there just taking charge. You've got everything covered and you are super high energy. And you told me that wasn't energy. That was nerves. Is that right? That's true. What's so fun and nice about this is that some of this stuff, I have a pretty good memory for things, but you, know, you don't think about things for 40 years and then things come back to you. I remember standing outside the, the office door set where Lonnie's about to introduce me. And I was so nervous. I worked now three times with MTM and I so badly wanted this to, to go right. I think and do not mess this up, Christian, do not mess this up is all that's running through my head. I remember that I was afraid that I, I would actually possibly walk into the, into the set and say something stupid like, don't be nervous, Christian, instead of whatever the line I was supposed to be saying. <laughs> Talk about Gordon Jump. How was, how was he working with? I, he just strikes me as just one of the sweetest guys. There were some personal issues going on in my life during that same week, unfortunately. It kind of came to a head. This stuff was all taking place in Portland, where I'm from, and Seattle, where my grandparents are from. It was just kind of a lot of pressure, I guess, for a 21-year-old. <laughs> and it finally kind of, kind of got the better of me by Wednesday. I just had this need to talk to somebody <laughs> who maybe had nothing to do with my situation at all. And, and so I approached Gordon and like I said, Gordon, it's not like we were friends, uh, but he certainly knew me from having been around the KRP set previously. And so I wasn't a total stranger type of thing, kind of the same way as going to visit Frank in the, the hospital is that we weren't big friends, but uh, you know, these folks knew me now. <laughs> and um so I approached Gordon. I said, you know, as we were going into lunch on Wednesday, I said, can I just like talk to you? Because he seemed like a type of person you could talk to easily. And turned out it was. And he said, sure, of course. And it's like, I'm sharing my family issues with Gordon over lunch. 
And he was extremely sympathetic, completely empathetic, just a real decent human being, which just, again, put another pin on the board, so to speak, of just how overall decent anybody that I was ever interacted with through WKRP, through MTM. I mean, I cannot say enough about how great an experience all of four of those experiences were for me. It's kind of like they're for real and you it's not a put on and you have to have this reinforcement through several people that you realize, hey, these guys are legit. They're really nice. You you mentioned I mean, Gary Sandy. Did you have a lot of interaction with Gary? Not not a lot. Um, not any more than, I mean, we were in that scene together. Kind of the most interaction I had was probably with Gordon, of course, and with Frank and with Howard. I, I did not have a lot of offstage interaction with Gary. He did have the uh, tiny attorney's line later. He did. <laughs> he said he was telling the guys in the bar, he goes, I've got this and I've got that. I've got tiny attorneys running all over the place. And uh, we had a question that bar scene that they're in where uh, Venus goes to find Johnny and he's playing pinball. Was that on the set or did they go shoot somewhere in a bar? That was a set. Okay. That was there on a set. Okay. Yeah. It, all right. it looked yeah. really good. It was a very, they had it really detailed, even down to the payphone with all the cards stuck around it, looking like people left notes and things around the payphone. I have a great admiration for set designers. They will go to the minutest details, um, you know, that somebody just might not see. Also, nobody envisioned in 1979 DVDs and people real fans of you know watching it over and over again and yet if you watch these type of shows over and over again um because i'm fans of certain things you go well i didn't see that detail last time i watched this you pick up on on things and and i guess they knew that or they just had enough pride in what they were doing to say you know we're gonna get this right down to the smallest detail and i admire that i think that's a real skill (laughs) now the way we're watching it we're freezing it constantly and we're looking at all the details and picking all these little things apart and they did do a lot of great work i mean we're finding a lot of amazing stuff in there i wanted to ask you were you a fan of wkrp before you got connected up with mtm or was it something you kind of had to play catch up on once you got that first call well had you you watched it when the sparky marcus episode happened young master carlson i had not seen it at all yet i don't think but a few episodes because that was first year i'm not sure even that many episodes had yet even run yet aired yet yeah it it would have only been on about three or four months by that point so yeah there and and they were playing around with the time period too they were moving them around a little bit in that era in that era when Lori called me and asked me about doing the stand-in work um you know she started the conversation by saying we have a new show called wkrp in cincinnati i'm thinking okay i should probably know this but i had never heard of it at that point so how was it then then back and forth with lonnie uh, in in the scene, because you guys really have quite an interaction there, and you're just so serious, in control, in charge, and she just is giving it right back to you. Just yep, yep. And but then then when you say she has to stay, and she goes, "Oh, why is that? Oh, no reason. No reason. <laughs> <laughs> that that will be uh, that will be what I will want on my tombstone uh, as the uh, uh, no reason. <laughs> that'll, be your, that'll be your epitaph. Huh? We really appreciate you sharing all this information with us, and and we love Elgar, man. That was that was fun. But Elgar was looked at as potentially being an ongoing character. You had family issues and some health issues that got in the way of that, and unfortunately, it didn't work out. But but man, what we got to enjoy it was fantastic. We loved it. Very memorable. 
Well, thank you very much. And and thank you to not just to you guys for doing this, but, you know, it, it really it, it struck me really heartfelt when I learned that there was the whole Facebook thing going on. It It never dawned on me. And I'm very appreciative. I mean, I knew the repeats were out there showing because every once in a while I'll get a $5 residual check because something <laughs> shows up somewhere. <laughs> At one point, I even watched watched it. Um, yeah, Mike Fright episode like five years ago because I just happened to turn the channel at the right time and re- saw that it was on. I thought, I, that really looks oddly familiar. That there's this whole um, fan club, for lack of a better term. Well, and um, also... During the four years when it was on, it was always struggling. It was always in the 20s and 30s. It was never, I mean, I mean, it did have a few number one weeks, but for the most part, it was a struggling series. It was not until it hit syndication that it really just took off, became this monster hit. And that is when a lot of people discovered it and fell in love with it in the 80s and 90s, not in the 70s and early 80s when it was on. Uh, and we we have a lot of people that listen to the podcast or that follow us on the Facebook page who are in their 30s and 40s. And I mean, they were born after the show was off the air, but then discovered it when they were in junior high or high school on after school on, you know, and they could watch it five times a week. So that's where a lot of fans came from. It's funny, I was reading an article recently about uh, the Brady Bunch, and it was kind of saying the same thing, that the Brady Bunch wasn't that popular a series when it was actually on. And I I was so attracted to the Brady Bunch. I mean, Christopher Knight, the middle son, was about my age, and I thought that was kind of like a little bit of the inspiration to wanting to be a professional actor. I'm going, I can, I can do what he's doing. <laughs> All I just need to do is get to Hollywood. But yeah, this article was saying that the Brady Bunch, when it was originally airing, was not that high up in the ratings. It only once went to syndication. Then, of course, they did a couple of special movies that it became more of the popular thing that it is now. And I guess WKRP kind of followed in the same footpath. Yeah, I think so. It really, really had that dynasty going in the syndication years. Well, do you have any other any other details, any other information, anything we didn't ask you that we really should have asked you about your week uh, as Elgar? Um, stand out as a fun story, something that happened that week? Just don't kick Frank's foot? Uh, yeah, don't kick Frank. Well, Christian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Well, we're going to go ahead and uh, I'll go through, cut this up, take out some of the lines and pieces and use them in the episode. And then also we might take a look at this, if you don't mind, as just releasing our talk as an extra. I am so looking forward to it. And I thank you both um, for for doing it. It's just it's really special. It really well, thank is. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Christian Seaborn for taking the time to talk with us. As we mentioned, Elgar was intended to be a recurring character. Unfortunately, a death in his extended family, followed immediately by a series of negative family and health issues, combined to keep Christian away from L.A. until after WKRP's run had ended. It's not a period of his life he likes to talk about. But he did say he was good with us sharing the Our Town Reno article in case you'd like more info. If you want to check it out, we'll include a link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to this WKRP cast season extra. May the good news be yours. The 
the WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!